Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. Chris Collins is a gardening legend, winning a legion of fans from his early days working in amenity horticulture to his big break on Blue Peter, presenting on the QVC shopping channel and being the ambassador to the national charity Garden Organic. Um, Chris, welcome to Dig It. You're a very good friend of the Garden Centre, so we're both really delighted that you could have a chat with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very honoured to be invited. That's <sighs> a pleasure. That's a pleasure. So, I suppose, Chris, where, where did your passion and attraction to plants and gardening start? Well, it's uh, it's quite an interesting story, really. I, I, it kind of came, um, there's no other way of putting this, from quite a dark place, I suppose, because... I kind of like had a quite a rocky time in my teens, to say the least, and um, and I kind of got to a point where I sort of needed to do something, something positive. Otherwise, you know, it was just going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, without going into too much detail, really, I think you know you can. You, you, there was there was trouble at home. With, um, you know, you hang out with the wrong people, all this usual stuff, I suppose. But I so I decided I needed to do something about it, and I remember very clearly actually going down to the careers office. I've been just before my seventeenth, and saying, you know, I don't mind what I do as long as I'm outside. I knew I needed to get a job, but I wanted to be outside. I was always one of those kids at school who just was always looking through the window and wanted to climb a tree. Um, I was very fidgety. Still am to this day, to be fair with you. <laughs> and um, and uh, but, but I, So I said, what can I do? And he, and he gave me a, um, this job, Apprentice Gardener with Brighton Parks. Now, I'd actually had quite an interesting uh, growing houseplants uh, through my teens all, through all, the, all those years. I'd grown uh, plants in my bedroom, so I'd had an affiliation with them. So I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. I'll be outdoors. And um, and so I put in for this job in the Prentice Gardener, Brian Park, and I got it. And it was interesting because the first two weeks I was there, I planted a Cornish elm, um, Augustifolia, almost Augustifolia, very rare, in Brighton Park, on the Preston Park, on the drive, London Road, as you go through the drive into Brighton. And I kind of knew, you know, I put this tree in, I kind of just knew then that's what I wanted to do. And, I, and I've never done anything else since. So it's a kind of really nice story. It was... You know, it went, I went from a place where it wasn't good to this amazing place, which I've luckily been in ever since, to be honest with you. Excellent. Mm. And have you seen, is, is the tree still growing? It's uh, amazing. It's about 35 foot tall now. <laughs> I planted it as a standard. Yeah. Um, I sat in it and did a piece of camera with the BBC a few years ago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I climbed it and sat in it. So it, I won't lie to you, gentlemen. If I've had a few ciders, you might find me cuddling it on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> There's Fun nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and from there, you ended up in as a graduate of the Royal Botanic Garden of Edinburgh. How, how did you get to move up there? Well, that was, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I suppose it's fair to say, actually, before I go on to that bit, how much I appreciate my time on the past, because I was kind of one of the last apprentices before they... You know, before it was all put out to tendering and it all got shook up. And um, I was actually did five years there and I worked alongside some of the best gardeners, if not the best gardeners I ever worked with throughout my whole career. So I learned, I had a really good grounding for my profession, a hands-on tool-based background to it. And then I just put in an advert. I saw that, you know, they give out the DHE, it's called Diploma in Horticulture and Botanics. I saw an advert in the Hort Week. Hort Week's been very influential on my career at various points. And I put in for it, and I, and I went up and they interviewed me. I just got a strong practical background. I had my city and guilds in the bag by then, and they gave me the place. And it's really, you know, the best way to describe it, I suppose, it's like river to sea. You know, you've been this, you learn your trade, you learn how to be a gardener, you moved around the department, and you get to a botanic garden, and suddenly all the science comes, and you look in it much closer. You get right detailed. You, meet, you can start getting into a pathology and entomology and all this other stuff. 
botany. And so it really just really expanded from there. And a great, it's just a great, great garden. I really do believe Scotland is the home of horticulture. All the great collectors were Scottish. And um, and I was just surrounded by all these amazing people. And I, I wouldn't lie to you, you know, I had three years there. And I, I loved absolutely every second of it. It's just brilliant fun. Excellent, good stuff. Mm. And I guess uh, when you're in Brighton, then you must have done anything and everything from. I mean, they've got some wonderful bedding displays. I suspect they're even better back in your day, and like cutting hedges and uh, anything that you, particularly stood, uh, stands out in your memories from fun times down in Brighton. Yeah, certainly. Well, you were moved every six months, so like you say, I'll be at the pavilion. Um, so I mm. do time there. I'm a big bedding man to this day. I absolutely love my bedding. I know it's not seen that fashionable these days, but I absolutely adore it. My balcony is always covered in it, because, so I carry it with me. But I then I do, got, I really like my groundsmanship. I look after golf courses, cricket wickets. Um, and then I spent time at Stammer Nurseries where I learned all the propagation techniques. I learned um, tree and shrub, tea budding. I did a lot of, uh, sort of soft um, cuttings in under glass. But my favourite really, I had six months in the Palm House, Brighton Palm House, which is still there. I think it's changed a bit over the years. But it was yeah. just me and this tropical collection of plants. Um, I was pretty much left to it. This amazing tropical collection of big ficus benjaminas and um, you know big cycads, all this sort of stuff, and crowons, and really amazing collection. And I would just you know put Radio Four on, um, potter around, feeding and watering, and just generally just in my little element, surrounded by all these plants. But that kind of sticks out a little bit for me. Brilliant. Yeah, that sounds like a nice time going to work. Yeah. I think I could sell, I was going to say, Chris, you're selling that really well. <laughs> For anybody thinking about getting into horticulture. Yeah, yeah. well, I've just been talking about it now. I'm just getting a watery-eyed and nostalgic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, it's just, you know, just such a simple, it's just you and plants, mm. you know. It's just that relationship is so simple but, inc- but incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful for, for your mind and your soul as well as your, you know, as well as earning enough money to pay your rent and keep things ticking over. That's, that's very true. No, I mean, yeah, your botanic uh, garden years sound great. What what happened next, Chris? Where where did things take you after after leaving the botanic gardens? Well, it's, it's um, well, this is <laughs> starting to go really on one now. I, I, in the nineteen ninety two, I had to do a dissertation. Obviously, you do as part of your degree, and uh, so I had a friend called Terry Sullivan. He was working out at um, Africa's oldest botanic garden, the Limbe Botanic Garden. On a project, and I'll try and say this in one go, called the, the Limbe Botanic Garden and Mount Cameroon Genetic Conservation Program, which was basically renovating this really old botanic garden, which at one time had been affiliated to Kew a long time ago in the past, mm-hmm. and then also looking at gazetting two areas of uh, prime tropical rainforest on Mount Cameroon. So I kind of went out and did that in 92. I was out there five weeks. At the end of my degree, they then offered me an, an internship, so I went out for about nine months at the end and I did a lot of renovations of the garden but I spent a lot of time in rainforest um, just amazing mind-blowing incredible forest I'll give you a little idea of how crazy that job was I used to, I used to live with six baby chimpanzees at one point and I walked around the kitchen in the morning <laughs> I walked around the kitchen in the morning with a baby chimp stuck to my calf while I made breakfast uh, I shared a room with a little female chimp called Mercy um, who farted a lot I have to say but I managed to get through all of that um, but it's just like, you know, Africa is just unbelievable and what an experience that was. But the forest there was just out of this world. And obviously working in African people are very warm and friendly and I, and I got well with them. So that was that was the first bit I did. And then I came back to Edinburgh and I'd been back about six weeks and I was sitting in a pub called the Barony Bar, a very nice pub in Broughton if you're ever up that way. And a mate of mine came in with a copy of the, uh, the, the, Japan, uh, the Scotsman and yeah. uh, in it was a little advert saying, Gardner wanted in Tokyo. So I sort of put this CV in, 
And six weeks later, I was on my way to Japan. Um, oh, wow. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to Japan. What do I know about Japan? Oh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, um, and, I, <laughs> and I thought, I mean, in a way, it was much more culture shocking than, than Africa because you just, there's just nothing to cling on to. No language, no, you can't read much. You kind of, and I was in a, a big department store, which is strange enough in itself, selling British horticulture, design, teaching, import, export of British goods. But I was the only, what they call gaijin, the only foreigner in the whole place. It was me and 500 Japanese people. So it was really, the first year particularly was really, really surreal. And were you doing gardening there or just you know, selling things or what were you doing in Japan? Yeah, yeah. So when I got exactly what I thought. And <laughs> they put me in this job. I was like, what am I supposed to do here? It was a brand new development. It was the biggest development for 40 years in Tokyo um, by Sapporo, which are a big beer company actually, but also big landowners. And okay. when I got there, the, the place was brand spanking new. Even the, the lift, I remember getting into the lift the first day. The lift was in bubble wrap. It's like the, the lift out of the bubble wrap. And, uh, and I had this big balcony there. And so I thought, well, I, I've, got to, I've got to invent this job, really. So I had this balcony. It was quite a big balcony. So I started doing container gardens, and I made this big garden up. The container gardens proved really popular. The Japanese are incredibly keen on presents, gifts. They're very generous people. So... They sold like hotcakes, and pretty soon I was going to the local market, one of the biggest markets in the world, buying up plants, importing things like Witchwood pottery, etc. So it's a very garden centric sort of job, really. So I was importing yeah. stuff. Mm. I then started bringing, I was the first guy to bring in uh, um, David Austin roses. I brought in 80 of those um, through the company I was working for. Um, and then we started bringing in, I just, you learn little things along the way. I bought four spades, and then four years later, I still had four spades. <laughs> not many gardens in Tokyo. Um, so, and I sold about 8 million trowels. So you kind of like, you get to know your bits. So it was very horticultural, but it was all based around British gardening and, and, their, and their love of our culture of gardening, the Japanese love of our culture of gardening. And it was quite interesting, really, in a way, because we were, we're revered in, the, in other parts of the world. We really are, you know. I know that Chelsea puts us out there quite a lot. But it was interesting, just as a tradesman, which is what I thought myself as at that time, still do to a certain degree, it was interesting to see how revered we were and how much business. And to be honest with you, you could have split me into 10 and I would have, uh, and there still wouldn't have been enough time for the amount of trade we were doing. Wow. That sounds like a fantastic opportunity, Chris. And you really made, you, you own that, uh, that position, didn't you, by the, by the sounds of things. So that yeah, makes it even you more... Do have, you, you do have some funny moments though, Chris. I, 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 you just don't know what's going on. And I ran out of toothpaste and I went to, you have this place called Lawson's, these 24-hour Lawson's. So I went down there quite late at night. I was doing long hours, and uh, there was this like Colgate in there, or one of the big toothpaste in it. It was like ridiculous, nine quid or something. They tariff everything, and underneath was another box with a tangy, which is the writing on it, and it was about two fifty. So I took it home and I brushed my teeth, and I was later to find out it was foot cream. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Well. This is a true story. I went to uh, you ever laughed and cried at the same time. That's why I remember that very clearly. And I, I went to the uh, shop the next day, and all the Japanese, the Tokyoites are very quite. They're not very expressive. They're quite, uh, you know, hard to read. Mm-hmm. And then when, especially when they're at work, and I, I kind of got out this tube and asked them what it was, and they promptly all fell on the floor laughing. <laughs> so, uh... oh, you, you made their day, I think. But... <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't it? And uh, obviously, you've worked in Africa and uh, in Tokyo. Have you picked up any tips on on how to make any of the jobs that we have to do as gardeners e- easier in your travels? Well, no, I suppose in a way, I think I think gardening is gardening wherever you go. So it, it's not. I think there's two rules I took out of it. Really, one is go with the flow. Don't expect them to be. You know, they work differently, especially Africa. It goes at a different pace. You know, the um, and so you just got to 
don't try and resist how things work. The Japanese as well, to their degree, they're very kind of they're very attention to detail, you know, and, and sometimes over the top so much. So you kind of at first you kind of want to do things your way, and then you have to relax into how it's done, you know. But the other big thing as well is just look at what's growing, what's growing around you. I put a lot of stuff in the first year I was in Tokyo, like pelagoniums. I put them in, and they're just beetle. You should just destroy them, absolutely destroy them. So I well, I can't use those. You start to try to look at stuff, and then you start to look at what what will grow, what will grow. For example, the old roses, David Austin, old roses, actually no problem in Tokyo at all. So you've got to sort of get to grips with what grows and what doesn't and work that out, as you do as a gardener anywhere, really. Mm, true, yeah, yeah, good, good advice, yeah. Um, so, Chris, after your, your adventures over in Tokyo, you, you came back to the UK. Um, what was your next big challenge? Well, I suppose in a way, I spent a little bit of time at, 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 at Q, readjusting to, to the uh, our culture was pretty pretty uh, hard work. Mm-hmm. I think you spend, you know, I think I was away five years in totally different cultures, and uh, and it's like it's um, you know, homes are strange one because you can suddenly you can hear all the politics again, and you can hear all the familiarity, you know, and all that, and that, that takes a little bit of adjustment. And uh, so, so yeah, I think familiarity, brief contempt, probably applies for your first six months, just because you haven't had to deal with the with the stuff you've had to deal with when you're away, when you're in mm-hmm. Japan, all that stuff doesn't matter to you. All you do is you're just focusing on your job. Um, so, but after a little while, I, did, I was readjusted again. I, I came back with a Japanese girl who's been my wife for the last 25 years as well. So that was kind of thrown into the mix. And then mm-hmm. I got a job at Q. So I was at Q and then I ran this, um, a little bit of the South Arb along, uh, with this guy Mark for just about 14 months, I think. And that kind of got me settled down again. I got in amongst mm-hmm. the plant collection and, I really enjoyed that plant, a lot of trees, which I still visit today. And obviously, Q's, you know, it is what it is. It's an amazing place. But then an opportunity came up to, to work as head gardener at Westminster Abbey, um, wow. which yeah. I put in for, and then I got. And uh, yeah, I can honestly say, hand on heart, out of all the things I've done, that is probably the most surreal of them all for many, many reasons. Well, they, well, they say it must be. I mean, um, what logistically are the gardens at, at Westminster Abbey? I mean, we're all sort of, I mean, there's plenty of lawns, but I'm trying to, can you paint a bit of a picture of, of the horticulture around the, the Abbey and inside the Abbey? Yeah, yeah, that's right, because most people, well, there's a place called College Garden, which is um, said to be one of the oldest gardens in the country, if not the oldest on record, over 900 years, which yeah. would originally been, it would have been a, a, like a monk's garden, a hospice, actually, or for people who were ill, they looked after ill people. The original Abbey, the site actually was an island. The Thames used to actually go round it. It used to be engulfed on an island, and we've obviously buried all that a long time ago since. So it was obviously run by monks, um, and it was uh, and it was uh, uh, very much uh, medical. So it's a lot of medicinal plants in there um, in the past. But when I got there, what it was is all a lot of people live on site in the abbeys, especially the clergy and their families. So it was an amenity garden right in the centre. There's a Christopher Wren building with one of the most expensive public schools in the country on the grounds as well. I think Nick Clegg went there, as one of the people I remember being told went there, and um, amongst others, various big names. Um, and so that was on the right. And then, so I had quite a lot of ground. There's a lot of lawn there. And I, well, I had a lot of lawn skills from my days on the parks, but we had big borders, et cetera, that I could work with. But the main thing I had to do is I had to, it, no one had really composted it or looked after the soil for 20, 25 years. So I got it back up and running with a big composting thing. There's an old greenhouse there that no one had used for, 34 years I renovated all of that and I just got going on it it's that um there's other little bits like the little cloisters here and there as well it's that old I think that added I think as a gardener you kind of you don't have paints and canvas we have plants and gardens so I very much approach it from that point of view if I grow stuff I get the soil good then I can start to move and weave stuff into the area and that's that's how it 
that, that's how it came. Also, um, I, I used to mow um, the grass in College Garden, the main bit, I used to mow a little 27-inch mower, a little Honda. And um, I'd mow it in circles round, because it had a roll on it, round the, these two big plane trees that are in there. So it looked like ripples coming out, and I worked out, it'd take me six hours to mow it, and I'd walk about 13k, just cutting wow. that grass in the morning. And <laughs> it, it just looked amazing. Fit, yeah, it kept me well fit. You had these ripples coming out from these trees, and the tourists would come in and touch it to see if it was real. And uh, and yeah, it was. It's, once you got going on it, it was it was an interesting job. And then you just had all the paraphernalia, all the day to day events of being in that that place going on around you as well. Excellent. And did you meet any famous people, any archbishops or queens, kings, anyone that we should, might know? Well, pretty, pretty much all of them, because it's kind of like the clergy, uh, I mean, and the royal, it's like the royal family's personal church, really, that's what it is, you know, that's how they, that's, that's probably how they see it, certainly how the clergy and the staff would see it. So they used to have parties in the summer, so they've okay. got a big marquee, they used to wreck, used to wreck my turf every year, <laughs> start again, but that's, oh, the, uh, that, that's, that's what gardeners are for, isn't it, really, where there's yeah. damage repair half the time, and, uh, and um, but the great and the good all used to come to that, all the politicians, all the clergy, all the royalty, so I've got a bit blasé about it, to be honest, gents, you know what I mean, oh, look, there's, 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 uh, there's Charles again, well, I'll call him king now, don't I, <laughs> you'd, be like, you'd see them regularly, and um, so you'd see them bowling around, so you just kind of the, I think it's about famous people and celebrities and whatever. Once you've seen them, they just become people. I think they only sort of a, a, a mystique to them when they're in the paper or on the telly, when they're sort of removed from you. When you sort of meet yeah. the person, yeah. oh, he's quite short, isn't he? That's <laughs> 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 kind of what happens, you know. That's, uh, the mystique goes out of it, but obviously quite interesting. Brilliant. And from there, next step, television? Yeah, this, this, this um, again, the whole week comes into play here. Um uh, I, I was working away quite happy at Westminster Abbey and I and uh, the whole week had a little advert in it saying BBC looking for presenters. So I, this is a mad story really. I sent off uh, a CV and I wrote back to him and said, it's interesting, can we shoot a taster with you? So I did a taster with them. I didn't hear anything again for about two months and then they wanted another portfolio of it. So I did that. And then they offered me a, 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 a role in a, presenting a plant program called The Plantsman. I don't know if you remember it. It was on BBC Two. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of went in that sort of, some, that Friday night slot. So some people hated it, some people loved it. It was quite controversial and new, but that's what got me started. And um, so I did that, and I was doing other UK style. And then I literally was doing a program called the Big Toe Radio Show, radio on Radio Seven, where I would do gardening in a studio with kids. So there's no visuals, and uh, and I was quite good at it apparently. And then Blue Peter came in and said they'd like to to uh, do a screen test with me. And I went along, and I remember this. I did a I did a tropical terrarium in a fish tank with Connie Huck. And um, they were, were so impressed with it, they aired it that day and, and the, the rest is history, really, because that became my main sort of TV gig for, well, getting on for 10 years, I did that. Mm. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Blue Peter, I mean, it's such an iconic BBC children's show. I mean, I'm, obviously, I grew up with it and watched, watched that garden grow all the time. So you're in there for, for doing the job for 10 years, which is a, a long spell of time, isn't it, Chris, for, for such a, you know, a hands-on programme. Yeah, it is. I think it's, uh, you know, I think to do that, to like most people going to telly are there quite fleetingly um, because that's just the nature of the business. It's a very fickle game and you're in one minute, you're out the next. So it, it's kind of, I feel that it's quite a big achievement to have lasted that long. Um, there were some things I loved about it. When you normally do television, Chris, you, you, you're pretty much told what to do. You, I mean, well, they even told me what to wear, you know, doing the plants. And you, you know, you kind of start, you're at somebody else's beck and call. The real skill is with the 
directors and the producers because they have the sort of mind's eye and they and so but when I did Blue Peter Blue Peter used to come to me and say what do you want to do and I and so I just you know I I I had editorial input which means it was just great fun to do you know so I'd take gardening sort of sort of techniques and stuff and input them into little projects that were very Blue Peter like in their in their approach so that that was just brilliant fun that was it and then obviously you'll know I just went on to have this big um, and still do to this day this big career that involves young people in schools and healthy eating and gardening and so it was kind of like in, in a way it, it felt the Blue Peter thing feels like my legacy I think it's the bit where I felt I really put something back uh, for all this amazing stuff you know thinking back at those 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 10 years though that don't they often say you should never work with children and animals um <laughs> and what did you have any any unusual experiences with with either or both uh doing doing the program well well certainly the, uh, the pets are quite interesting um they used to have this cat called i think it was called socks or something and um it didn't want to be it didn't want to be in the uh in the studio at all it just didn't want to be there and one day um <laughs> So when they did a bit on camera, they used to hold it in a vice-like grip. Otherwise, it would just get free and scratch the presenters. And um, <laughs> one day we had nice. Doctor Who special in there. <laughs> so we had the Doctor Who special in there. And uh, so the whole place was full of Cybermen and Daleks, uh, real life-size ones. And this just drove the cat absolutely mad. And I've just got memories of this cat just doing a bolt as quick as it could. And then someone had to go and find it. And it, uh, it just caught, this cat caused absolute chaos amongst the Cybermen and Daleks all day long. And there used to be a dog called Lucy as well who... Um, she was clever, you know, so you get her to sit and shot, you'd, they'd throw her like 10 little biscuits and then she, you count to 10 and she'd walk out again because she, she worked out <laughs> that if she walked out and shot, you'd have to throw another 10 biscuits. And I watched her gradually get fatter and fatter and fatter during the course of like 10 years uh, where she just sucked out as an extract food from the store. Yeah. <laughs> dogs are always good at that aren't they most definitely yeah oh they're absolute masters at it yeah she certainly was yeah she certainly yeah. was Chris, when I was growing up, of course, it was um, Blue Peter. Uh, so on, on Blue Peter, it was of course it was Percy Thrower who was the he was the the, the, the head gardener of, of the program, and that was obviously back at uh, BBC Television Centre, um, the famous Concrete Donuts, I think it used to be called, didn't it? And it, of course, it was famous yeah, for the, its, the donut, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, famous for its Italian sunken garden. And of course, that that garden eventually moved to BBC Media City UK, which is obviously near Salford. Um, that must have inc- involved quite a big move logistically for, for you and the team. Yeah, it was crazy. I- I'll tell you a story. That's a- Percy Thrower, bless him, when he built the Italian Sunken Garden, had eight staff and they took three months to build it. I knocked it down, numbered it like a giant jigsaw, put it on pallets, moved it to Manchester. At some at certain points, we had cranes involved and, and JCBs and stuff to dig up uh, lost... Um, time capsules and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Moved it to the Manchester, rebuilt it, made it like a 20-minute teleprogram, rebuilt it with two guys in eight days. I did it. <laughs> and <laughs> well. the two guys I did it with, the two guys I did it with never worked for me again. <laughs> well, I, I had them, I had them, uh, I had them working at night under lights. It was February as well, so it was snowing. <laughs> like, it was just a mammoth job. It really was. Uh, it was a line of dark room for a week afterwards. One of them certainly was. But it saved it, you know. Mm. If it, we hadn't have done it, it would have just... Because I went back there recently to TV Centre and it's all open now. You can walk around in it. There's still a studio there, but there's lots of residentials. And it's gone. There's no more garden. It's been built on. There's a big block on it now. Oh, so, that's... you know, without that without that effort, it would have been lost forever. So I'm, I'm kind of glad, even though it killed us. 
Oh, I'm th- quite glad we did it. I think you, you did a great job there because it was obviously such an important part of that programme. I you know, remember watching it and uh, and obviously all the advice that good old Percy Thrower used to give was always centred around that uh, Italian sunken garden, wasn't it? It was always the, the main base for his, his chance to camera. Exactly. It, it's, um, it's, uh, it's just, you know, it's historic, isn't it? It, it really is. is. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, I, like, I grew up watching it. You know, I mean, obviously nowadays things have changed because kids are on digital platforms and mm-hmm. stuff, but, you know, for us older ones, we, we all know Blue Pete and we all know that garden. And, uh, yeah. To be honest with you, it, it, even I haven't done it since 2015, I think, or 14 I stopped. I still get called the Blue Peter Garden. It will be on my gravestone, gents, I tell you, Blue Peter. I will never escape it. And obviously now you're, you, you spend a lot of time visiting schools and talking with thousands of children. What, what one thing do you think connects children with gardening and planting and what what makes it tick for children? Well, I think it's interesting because I, I, like, I have literally have done thousands of uh, you know schools. I, I remember one month, I think in 2012 or so, I did 230 schools in one year. In, just oh, in one wow. year, I was that busy with it. Yeah, and that was this was all when um, what was happening was the school food plan and stuff like that, where we were, where, you know, the original starters worry about child's physiques and their, and, their, and their exercise and what they're eating and stuff. So it all, I got a lot of what's called corporate responsibility cash, where you they would fund me to go and talk about seed to play. Um, so definitely growing things that you can eat. They like an outcome. I think it's important to say that in all the time I did this, I never had one child say to me, this is rubbish, I'm not doing it. And I think basically gardening, uh, we're all farmers and gardeners for thousands of years. I think it's genetic. I think there's a natural but a light that goes on when you touch the soil and when you work with plants. I think it's inside us. It's in our DNA. It's particularly easy to see in kids because they're not covered up by layers of cynicism as, they, as we do when we get older. <laughs> yeah, the light goes never. on much, much quicker. It's true, isn't it? And then that it's light true. goes on much, much quicker. So I think certainly growing food, the other thing they love to do is just, they love a bit of entrepreneurialism, you know. We do a lot of borough market. We do this thing where we go, well, I go along, I teach them how to sow seeds, and then they come back and then they sell it at the market for three or four months later. So the idea, especially of older kids, the idea of, you know, being able to make a few bob as well and go through that whole process, that seems to work very well. But I think on the whole, there's a very natural affinity between human beings um, and being a gardener or a plant or touching the soil, and that's particularly easy to see in, in kids. I really believe that. Mm, very much so. So going on from that, Chris, your your gardening book, Grow Your Own for Kids, that obviously developed on, on the back of that, or was that sort of part of the Blue Peter years? Well, that was doing it really. That, that that was kind of a collection of little bits and bobs I'd done on there really with mm-hmm. um, with Blue Peter. So there's little ideas I picked up. If you want to work in a school environment, there's, there's some rules to it. The fact that you want it to be cheap for a start. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of money sloshing around, so it has to be quite cost effective. You want it to be quite quick because teachers have got a million things to do with kids these days. The pressures on them get bigger all the time. And you want it to be maybe so it ties in with the curriculum. So there's a bit of education in it as well. They're the kind of three sort of hits, really. So things like a pizza wheel. I mean, you mean you would call it a herb wheel, but I just ultimately called it a pizza wheel. So they were growing pizza toppings. You kind of, everybody loves a pizza. You're going to grow the topping. There's some maths in it and you know, there's some biology in it, all this sort of thing. So you're, you're trying to think how the uh, teacher would approach it, but also I'm making sure that it doesn't become a burden. So it doesn't become an extra thing for them to do. It's got to be enjoyable for everyone. So this, the, 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 um, the book's a collection of little ideas like that, really. I've actually written another one. I should get it together to try and get it published because there's a lot more ideas that I've got now as well. And uh, so I think there's probably a follow-up in there as well, but it's all 
based around easy to do, quite simple um, attention grabbing projects that are cost effective, really. Excellent. Excellent. I have to get down the library or go and get on Amazon and buy one for my children then. It sounds like a good book. Yeah, that's brilliant. And Chris, currently you're head of horticulture at Garden Organic. And now that's a charity very dear to our heart. I know my mother loves the, the seeds and things that we get from them. And they're currently charity of the year for us at, at the garden centre. You've been in the role a while now. And what do you think is the biggest barrier to people becoming organic gardeners well i think there's a lot of myth in it i think it's seen as it, i think in the past it's been kind of seen as a bit elitist a bit sort of something you know a little bit a little bit hippie-ish maybe a little bit something it, that, that's a little bit more um, uh, removed from normal horticulture normal gardening which is interesting really because um it's not at all 90 percent of it is pretty much the same there's just some bits of it that change you know a lot, a lot of the uh, stuff I practice on my allotment as an organic gardener on my balcony. I was practicing that anyway before. I've just made some alterations that I would say classify me as organic. Well, actually saying that, I think well, being organic is an aspiration. Um, I think you, you can go, you know, a little bit into it or you can go a long way into it. If you were going to be really strict, it's, it's driving a car organic, you know, and it's using a machine organic. Or it, I think it's a very hard thing to quantify. And I think that in a way paints it uh, as a bit of a mystery. Um, and I think that's why maybe it's been difficult. What's interesting, though, is that times have changed immensely. And if you look at all the promotion happening in horticulture, biodiversity, sustainability, all these sort of words that have come into play and the influence. Well, Lawrence Hills, who set up Garvey, he was talking about this stuff 40, 50 years ago. The guy was a visionary in, in a way. So I kind of think, in a way, the messages that Garvey Organic have been saying all this time have, have, have been vindicated. I think in a way that they've, you know, what we've promoted for a long time is now being promoted by the industry more generally. Um, and obviously, that will always be up for discussion in its own way. But I think that idea of natural gardening, I, must, I like the word natural gardening, um, working alongside nature, you know, to, like, trying to have some sort of balance. I love potage gardening. My allotment is very mixed with flower and fruit and veg and, and herbs. It's all kind of thrown in together. I find that very effective. I think also the big rule with it as well is I like organic gardening because it's a, much, a, lot, a lot of it's about observation, as most gardening is. But I feel closer to the subject. I need to keep quite a an eye on it to see what's happening. So it's brought me closer to my to my horticulture in a way. And I think that's basically what Garden Organic are trying to do, make it localised, make it natural, and then just enjoy it. Just go out and enjoy it. Don't think you're in a battle. Make, just try and work alongside it all, if that makes sense. Mm, definitely. And me being the really diligent gardener that I am, I like organic gardening because it's less work. It's <laughs> your bugs and yeah. <laughs> weeds just grow quite happily in the allotment. <laughs> I know I get yeah, laughed at. It, it, <laughs> it brings in a looseness. Although well, like my local park seems to be taking it a bit too seriously, I think. I think that it, goes, <laughs> it just goes, it goes a bit too far, and then you go well. You know, it's by you know you can pass a lot of things off as biodiverse, and there's, there's, there's you know there's still horticulture involved, but it is. You're right, it's a lot freer. It's a less you know. When I started gardening, it was everything was so precise. We edged everything, everything, any weeds were automatically extinguished. Everything was neat and tidy. But to be honest, with you, we had a lot more gardeners then, a lot more skilled mm -hmm. gardeners. I think we, I think when I first started engaging in more natural gardening, it was at Kew when I was at Edinburgh, come down to Kew quite a lot. And they started in the long grass areas starting to think about it being more natural, encouraging more wildlife in. And it's just run from there, really, hasn't it? It really has. Um, and I think that Garden Organic have played a role in that. I, I definitely think that. 
Yeah, and I think, like you say, once people start sort of getting into the idea of naturalizing areas and realizing, I mean, for us here at the garden center, I've really noticed it over the last, I'm say, five years. Yeah. We've been keeping bees here, and we no longer plow the field more than once a year and where the holding beds for the male order sort of area were always like mown mown and plowed and there was never anything allowed to grow in it and over the last yeah i'd say five six years we've just been leaving it all from the spring through to the autumn Mm -hmm. plow it all up in the autumn and this year i was looking at the we've got orange we've got poppies we've got just loads of wildlife and thistles and and plants that have just naturalized i mean it's obviously taken a good few years to get there but Mm. it's it's so beautiful now compared to just a brown old plow field and uh, it was before yeah i think nature just will it's amazing about nature is it just it'll move in if you give it the opportunity Mm. it will just find its way in and i think that's quite incredible and i think it's probably important to say is that doesn't mean to say you know we just have to let everything go there's there's room for a long grass area of your lawn and a short grass area where you want to maybe kick a football or sit and have something to eat you know it's, it doesn't have to be one or the other the, the two worlds can blend together quite nicely it's not I don't, i've never seen it as an us and them thing i just think that we need to be thinking a lot more about biodiversity about our nature we've taken a lot from it let's give it a little bit of space to breathe and it will and it rewards us exactly as you just described it it's bountiful in its return and i think that can only be a good thing most definitely yeah and it's a positive thing which we're all enjoying now um chris you've you've sort of partly described your garden you, you're, you're a balcony gardener is that, is that correct yes i've got my it's my pride enjoying my balcony um yeah. obviously i did a lot of balconies in tokyo that's where my first interest came in i find it interesting now we've got balcony gardens at the chelsea flower show so mm. you know it's obviously a, a, a thing that's moved into the conscious half of london um doesn't have a garden because we all live in flats you know so a lot of young people move in will probably not have a garden an average size of a new build house the garden's only going to be four by four so this you know, the days of buying a house with a big 40-foot garden are pretty much over in a lot of ways. So I found it really interesting in Tokyo how you can create a garden in small spaces. And if you're thinking of it as a cube rather than a flat space. So in Tokyo, I would get two square metres and i put in an arch, hanging baskets on the walls, hanging baskets on the railings, um, you know, obelisks in. And then suddenly you've got all this extra room for growing. And I very much approach that on my own balcony. And, it, and, it, and I fill it. I fill it right up. I really do. And, I, and at the moment, it's full of uh, my bedding. I love my bedding, so it's very colourful. And then in between the bedding, you'll find dwarf tomatoes, you'll find tumbler, you'll find aubergines, chilies, peppers, uh, salads, um, spinach. Uh, all of that's kind of weaved through it. So it's feeding me, and it's colourful, and it's full of hoverflies and bees and small birds that are come. So it's this entire garden. It, it really, size is not the object when it comes to, to being a gardener, and I think that that's a good... But for certain, you know, that's a good rule for you as well. If you're running a garden centre, you don't, you know, that there's a whole new market there to be to be taken up if we get our messages right when it comes to being a balcony gardener. Most definitely, I mean, we're seeing that with, I think we've had over over a thousand houses built in around around the garden centre here over the last four or five years, and that's the question we're getting asked now. You know, a smaller idea for gardens, you know, better plants which we keep more compact and maybe shading or. Uh, Shading trees or trees which will provide a bit of protection from privacy, they're all sort of important factors, which again, perhaps a few years ago, were not high on people's priorities, well, which is good. Yeah. Mm. And I think I think the other area similar to balconies is obviously patios, mm. because like you say, the, the average garden is a lot smaller these days, and patio gardening, 
always things very similar to sort of balcony gardening in the sense of you've got a much more restricted space. But it is amazing what you can get to grow in pots. And mm. I, I, I love the bit at Chelsea where you see the patios with their little displays and mm. all the different ideas you can get into. You know, yeah. Sort of yeah so- it's, it's not, we're not restricted to space. And I think that it's, a, as long as you learn the husbandry, you know, as long as you know, obviously, you've got a, a quite, I have quite a um, strict feeding regime with seaweed extract. And I use Bocking 14, the uh, pellets as well. And as long as I'm feeding, because obviously baskets and containers leach quite easily in the rain and the watering. If you're doing that, you know, and you and, and always got to give it, the big rule I would say with it is you just got to have, I've got to have that 10, 15 minutes with it at the start of each day. If I walked away for a week and didn't look at it, it, it would not get the same results. I need to give it that little 10, 15, once it's planted and it's in, that little 10, 15 minutes every day where I walk everything by hand to the plant. So I'm doing all the other checks in my mind about plant health, what the plant might need. I do the feeds and seaweed extract between sort of April and June. I do little and often seaweed extract. And then I'll start to use the pellet because it's got the potassium. I want to get the fruit and flower. But every day I'm out there for that 10, 15 minutes. It's a great way to start the day as well. So I'm up in the trees, the birds are singing, it puts you in a blinding mood for the rest of the day. But that kind of attention, making sure it's intense gardening, but it's short and quick. So once you've got it up and running, and I also think a great way to do it, if you want it not to be static, to do what I do is I seasonally garden. So all the stuff out there at the moment is bedding, it's uh, seasonal crops. That'll all come out in, in October. It'll go on the compost seeds, and I'll bang it with bulbs. And what happens is then come February through till early June, I'll have, I'll have uh, galanthus and I'll have crocus, I'll have daff, I'll have tulip, I'll have allium. So you get this run of colour right up to the May and then I'll rotate it again. So it's constantly moving and evolving. And because it's contained, I can shift it around if I feel like as well. I can play with it like chess pieces almost. And I just think it's a really interesting way to garden and a great way to take advantage of those small spaces we have just outside our doors, really. I have a salad bar out there which I sow in drills with microgreens, and I let them grow, and I inter-sow. So I do 20 centimetres apart, like a row of spinach, a row of rocket, a row of salad, and I inter-sow, so I've got constant supply. So I've got fresh organic salad right out my back door, you know, eight, wow. nine months of the year. Straight, onto the, straight into my sandwich, straight into my salad bowl. Perfect. It's just a really simple way to get food, yeah. Chris, you've sold that. That's a really good way of getting productivity from a small space, isn't it? And, and it's achievable for everyone. You know, you don't need grand dose gardens. You just need the space, the inclination, uh, and a little bit of know-how. But, you know, that comes with experience, doesn't it, which is good. Yeah, Chris, you learn that along the way, Chris, don't you? We, we all know that. You, you know, I always say to people, wisdom is born from error. So of course. <laughs> that's if you how. make a mistake, you, kind of, you wise up, don't you? And uh, I think it, it, it's just from the point of view of um, how it makes you feel inside inside your mind, inside your spirit, it's worth doing it from that angle alone. And I, and I couldn't encourage people enough because it just, like I said earlier, it just puts you in a decent mm. frame of mind for the day. Yeah. And that can only be a good thing for, for not only yourself, but everybody else out there That's as well. That's very true, yeah. Chris, obviously you're saying you spend sort of 15, 10, 15 minutes every morning going out and do, doing some care to your balcony garden. I guess with your, your sort of busy lifestyle, you're away a fair bit. What do you do with regards to watering and keeping your containers sort of moist and wet whilst you're not there? Well, I have two tricks. <laughs> the main one is, is I've taught my wife well. <laughs> <laughs> Having an assistant is always a great, great help, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. I, I, I could not, I, there's no way I could lie my way around that. <laughs> no, but she loves doing, she loves popping around out there as well. If we're both away, then I do like to, I use, you know, these uh, uh, plastic bottles with these 
spouts on that you just release the water very slowly. Oh, I know. I'll have an array of those. I did just go to Glastonbury this year, and um, this is the resilience of hanging baskets. When I got back, it was really hot while I was there. Mm. When I got back after four days, it was, everything was just curled up, bone dry. Um, and I was shocked, and I watered it all really heavily, and it all sprang back to life. So the moral of that story is don't go away for more than four days. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's brilliant. Chris, is there anything else you'd still like to do in the in the world of gardening? Well, it's interesting because I'm kind of coming in to my last decade, I suppose, in a way, um, which is interesting. I, I feel like maybe I've got one big job left in me. I, I actually, it's interesting. I got off the job in South Korea last year um, up in the mountains, and I was very tempted to take that um, um, as they're building the garden up there. But unfortunately, for six months of the year, it's minus 20, and I don't think my old bones would have took that. To be honest, to be <laughs> I think that I would have been, yeah, I, don't, I think that would have crippled me. Um, so I had to turn that down. But maybe there's one of those still out there somewhere, you know, where um, um, that, uh, that might fall. So I've always got one eye open, Chris. I've always got one eye Good. open. And, uh, and if something came along that, I think, well, that would, that would be a nice way to, to have to, for my finale then that's what I do. Um, I'm not in a rush. It's not something I wake up thinking about, but I've always got one eye open. Excellent. Good, good, good. Chris, we, we do like to ask you about uh, being shipwrecked on a, on a desert island. So which plant or tool would you wish that you had, uh, you, you could plant or enjoy on your, your virtual island? Well, that's a, that's a, um, I mean, that's a tricky question because so many things spring to mind. Not so much the tool. I have a pair of sacketeers, Felco Ace. Sorry, I'm going to give them shamelessly plug to Felco there. Because um, <laughs> I love the handle on it, the handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been all over the world with me then, Felcos. I've, you know, they've been with me 30 years. They are. I'm going to put them in my coffin, I think. Um, they really have been everywhere. So that's an easy one. The sacketeers, plus all you've got your sacketeers, you can take cuttings, can't you? Of course. You can, you can get up mm. on the go. So that'll be that. Plant-wise, it's really difficult. You know, when I go into schools, I always get, what's your favourite plant? And it's difficult because it changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've always got, you'll never know it all. You can live, you know, 10 lifetimes and you'd still be turning up new and stuff, finding new stuff. But I think if I really had to knuckle it down, I, I, I love a birch tree. I love a betula. Okay. I love it for two reasons. One is, well, one is when I was away, I, sometimes I'd get homesick in it. And it, in Africa and Japan, you do get them in Japan, but not in Tokyo. And uh, although many of them, but when I come back home, you'd see like uh, you know big banks of them. You get especially in the winter. So come back the winter, get a lovely purple tinge to them, the white stems. But uh, so I really it reminds me of home basically. It reminds me of comfort. And the other thing is, it just looks so relaxed. It never looks. a birch tree is the definition of not being stressed, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> this lovely weeping habit doesn't seem to have a care in the world. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the rest of the plant, the plant world. I think it doesn't. Seems to be, you know what I mean? It just seems to be kind of totally chilled out, and I and I think that probably if I if I was stressing because I'm a very sociable man, if I was on a desert island and I was stressing, um, I'd look at a birch and, and I think that would take the edge off. Perfect. And I guess if you're really lucky, you'd find a little screw or something you could tap into the tree, and then you could get some sap out and make yourself some wine. Of course. Yes, yes. you can. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. I thought I've uncovered the real reason why I wanted to take a birthday. <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. Good <laughs> stuff. But, uh, I did a, we used to do a lot of tree work in my younger years. And, and if you go up the tree in the, a birch in the spring, it pours like a tap when the sap's rising. Mm. And it does actually make a really nice drink. You cut bow, a little bow off it. starts to, You can fill a cup of it up and have a drink. It's like really sweet, sweet water. 
So you can, it is, it is, you can get your first, and if you can ferment it, even better. That's me obviously lying on a beach drunk with my birch wine and my sack of tears. That's brilliant, good stuff. And I guess through your sort of career so far, you've come across many different situations. Have you got any funny stories you can think of to share with us? I've probably got, I've got a few, but I'll, I'll share the, what I probably think is the most bizarre one. Um, that is the tale of the uh, the fence, the, the gate post. Um, um, tale of the gate so post. This sounds fascinating. Company, yeah, this, this is bizarre. I was working with this co- company called Giles Landscapes after my apprenticeship, uh, learning learning to landscape and a bit of paving and fencing and stuff like that. I thought it coming handy. And I was in a, in a place called Upfield in West Sussex, and I was digging out a, a hole for a big, heavy farm gate post. They're really big thing. They're like 20, 25 centimeters sort of yeah. um, size to. It. So it was really heavy clay. I don't know if you know Upfield. It's clay with slate in it. It's the worst thing to dig in the world. And <laughs> I had what awful, awful soil to dig. And I had what you call a grafter, which is what they dig lamppost holes out with, like a curved, long, thin blade. And I was digging away, and it was raining really heavily. And I, I got down about a metre and a half, quite a long way they wanted me to go down. And it was getting harder and harder to lever this clay out. So I kind of leant in, and I was pulling it out with my hands. I've got it all loose. And then I lent it a bit far and I then just fell in completely. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then my head just went, it actually suctions into the bottom of the hole. Oh, and, uh, I was stuck. I was absolutely stuck. And I, and I was thinking, and the, because it was raining quite hard, the hole started to fill with water. And I was thinking, oh, well, Lord. this is a bit of a bizarre way to go out. Um, <laughs> and I was like, this, 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 probably, <laughs> this probably only went on for a couple of minutes, but it felt like a lifetime. Oh, and then really? my foreman, I'd only been working with him for two days, came back to the field where I was working, and all he found was these two legs playing around out, <laughs> sticking out of this hole. And, oh, then, and he pulled me out. He got hold of my ankles, and he pulled me out, and I made a sound like a cork coming out of a wine bottle. Wow. Is that bizarre enough for you? Fantastic. <laughs> and, I've never heard of anyone doing that before, but, yeah, it doesn't sound like a great experience. And, Chris, you've never done that again, I suspect. <laughs> no, no, you know, but wisdom is born from error, gentlemen. Wisdom is born from error. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Chris, I believe you'll be joining us for our Apple weekend, which is the 30th of September, the 1st of October. Yeah, looking forward to that. Love it. To help share your wonderful gardening wisdom and also judge our uh, children's gardening competition, which we, we sent out, I think, 25 packets of sunflower seeds. So we're expecting some lovely sunflower heads from our local schools on that as well. And obviously to offer wonderful our customers some wonderful information about Garden Organic. Um, we really look forward yeah. to seeing you then, Chris. And uh, me too. I, I, I love coming to the garden centre. I love the garden centre itself. It's such a plants and garden centre, isn't it? I, I, um, I always enjoy looking around. You can tell that like that some real plant lovers are, are, are running it because you just find this stuff all the time. And the rosebank. I love all the sort of the whips as well and the hedging. And I just love the garden centre. I really do. And I look forward immensely to, to coming along in September. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to having you. And thank you so much for today's podcast, Chris. It's been great talking (laughs) to you again. No, you're more than welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, then. Cheers. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy... We want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. 
We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.